last time I preached was probably back in August. Uh, my name is David. I'm the associate pastor here at the church, and I uh, teach the youth every single week. I'm not up here, and uh, I, I promise you if you were to be up on the stage, you'd feel a little bit daunting. This stage is very daunting, but uh, I'm super excited to be here this morning. I'm, I'm super privileged to, to preach and, and to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, so if you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. The last several weeks, our pastor has been going through a sermon series called The Whole Story. And he's been going through the book of Matthew and looking through Scripture in the lens that Matthew sees uh, the world and through uh, God. But today we're going to go to Luke. Uh, the last several weeks, uh, pastor has been going through the genealogy of Jesus, right? The whole story stretching from eternity to eternity. And just last week, he had gone through that Jesus had succeeded where the nation of Israel and the kings had failed. Jesus is the perfect Savior. And what our pastor used last week was the word rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer. And so today, uh, instead of looking through the lenses of Matthew, we're going to look through the lenses of Luke. And I want to ask a question. How do we make sense of of this, of the whole story of Christmas. How do you piece all the pieces together to make up the whole story? How do we fit in all of this? How does it make sense for us, the story of Christmas 2,000 years later? And this is what we're going to talk about, piecing the story together. Now, some of you know that uh, Kenzie and I, uh, we, well, we'll be five years married in May. And some of you can kind of guess that we had met in college, and you'd be right. Well, maybe some of you don't know how we met in college, and so I'll tell you that story. And it involved a lot of pieces, and so please try to follow along. It's kind of confusing. Uh, so Kenzie is attending class, and she, has, uh, she meets an old friend in her class, and uh, his name is Ben. Ben starts telling Kenzie uh, about this guy who loves Jesus and plays a guitar, and uh, happens to be his roommate. And so uh, Kenzie hears about this guy from Ben, and she tells him, no thanks. I'm not looking for someone to matchmake me, right? Uh, so uh, I'm going to respectfully decline. Well, we move over to my scenario of things. My roommate is telling me about this girl in his class, and he said, hey, man, this girl would be perfect for you. She loves Jesus. You should really get to know her. And I said, you know what, man? I'm okay. Thank you. But I'm going to respectfully decline. Around the same time, I get invited to lead worship at University Baptist Church here in town for a week-long revival. And it's a revival that I get to lead worship on Sunday morning and the evening for the rest of that week. So Sunday morning comes across, and I lead worship. I don't know anybody there. And I see this beautiful girl, the most beautiful girl, and I said, golly, she is beautiful. I don't even stare, because you know, you guys know how it is. You don't want to stare too long to give it away, right? You don't want to. And so the next, uh, that night, Sunday night, uh, I lead worship. After the service, a man comes up to me, and he says, hey, my name is Mike Madden, and this is my family. Uh, that's Kenzie, and that's Haley. And I said, okay, well, it's a pleasure to meet you guys. Well, uh, long story short, basically, Kenzie walks up to me, and she says, hey, is your roommate Ben? And I say, yes. 
And, uh, and so that night, I go to my dorm and I start telling Ben about this girl. Her name is Kenzie. And we start connecting all the dots and everything starts to make sense. So our story is a little bit of a windy road. But uh, the same person that my roommate was talking about was Kenzie. And the same roommate, oh, same old friend that Kenzie had was talking about me. And so, yeah, that's, so that's a little bit of our story there. Uh, we, we became friends, and we got engaged, and now we're married. So that, that's our story. And till still this day, uh, Ben, he's not a believer, but what he would say, he says, I get the credit of all that. And I was like, I don't know, man. I, I think God was working, you know, obviously. I didn't even know her name, and it was still the person. So we like to tell him that you can have 10% of the credit. So that's... That's kind of all that we give them. But part of the story, have you guys ever like experienced that? Where you start connecting the dots or you start getting all the puzzle pieces together to make up a whole story. If you watch crime shows, you're trying to solve the crime using all the clues. Or if you watch a movie that involves, you know, a young couple married and one person goes through a coma. and She ends up forgetting that she's married to that husband. She's trying to piece all the pieces together to make sense of it all. Have you guys ever experienced that? Well, today we're going to look through the we're going to look through the lenses of Luke. We're going to ask some of these questions. So we're going to go ahead and read Luke chapter two, starting on verse ten, and it says this. I'm reading through the CSB. It says this, but the angel said to them, "Don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people." Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Now, a little bit of the context of this. We're just using these two verses. But the angel of the Lord comes up to the shepherds of the fields, letting them know that a Savior has been born. And this is what the angel says. Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for today. I pray that you may show us and reveal us your word and your truth. Lord, that even in a dark world, that the light of the world has been born, and that is Jesus. Lord, thank you for being good to us and kind to us, for extending us your grace and your mercy. Lord, that we carry on to live out the truth in our life, and that you are the centerpiece to that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If I'm going to puzzle piece together, I need to ask a few questions first. Now, like I said, Pastor had been going through the lenses of Matthew. Today, we're going to go through the lenses of Luke. Now, just based on a few questions, who is Matthew and who is Luke? And so we're going to go through that today. What's the difference between those two people? Well, we can tell that Matthew, number one, is one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, right? He followed Jesus. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He's the original 12. Now, as to Luke, he's a second or third generation Christ follower. Somebody else told him about Jesus. He probably didn't see the miracles of Jesus. We don't know. We also know that Matthew is a Jew. And probably more less likely, you know, Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. So you can already see there's a difference already seeing that there's a different perspective of things. Uh, we see that Matthew only writes one gospel, as to Luke writes a part one and part two. 
He writes the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which is a part two. Just some other details here. Matthew is a tax collector, or was. Luke is a physician. But I want you guys to think about this. How does someone like Luke make sense of the story of Jesus, a Jewish Messiah coming to save? How, how does he make sense of this? For us, right? How do we make sense of it? We may not be a second or third generation Christ follower. We're a you know, 100 billionth generation Christian. And 2,000 years later, we're still talking about Jesus. How do we make sense of the story of of Christmas, of the birth of Jesus. And so Luke is going to help us figure that out. And the awesome thing about Luke is that he gives us a reason for writing his gospel. So if you, if you can, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke gives us a reason for writing his gospel. It's a really cool thing. And it says this, that many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the world of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Luke gives us a reason for writing his gospel. It's a beautiful thing. He says, man, there's been few people that have compiled these things, but just as the original eyewitnesses, those stories have been handed down to us. Verse 3, so it had been good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to you to write to you in an orderly sequence so that you may know the certainty of the things which have been instructed to you. So us, 2,000 years later, as Gentiles, more or less, he's written this gospel for us to tell us that the story of Christmas is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for the whole world, as we can see that this is good news that causes great joy for all people. So how does this play out? Uh, One of the things I... I, I noticed here, uh, some translations have it different, but uh, on your bulletin, I went ahead and, and bolded those words. Verse 2, it says, just as the original eyewitnesses, that the original, that word is in, is in the CSB Bible. If you have an NIV or something, ESV, it may say the word beginning. That word there is, is the word arche in Greek. And what it's referring to is a historical timeline or chronological order of things. You go on to verse 3, and it says, I've carefully investigated everything from the very first. So you have to ask, is he meaning the same thing? Well, that very first also could be translated as beginning, or uh, or the very first, as my translation says, is the Greek word anothen, which means from above or on top. Today we would understand that as a bird's eye view of things. So if we look at Luke's intention of things, Luke is trying to tell us that he's not only looked at things in the chronological order of things since the time of Jesus' ministry and from the very beginning, but now he's looking at it at a bird's eye view of the whole story. How do we get pieces of the puzzle to understand the whole picture? Well, 
Luke is trying to take us back to the beginning. Sounds familiar? So how does the whole story play out? If we're going to piece together, we need to follow Luke's intentions of things. So if you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to kind of camp out there for just a little bit. But I want us to see that Luke is trying to take his readers to the beginning to understand a few things. As a Gentile, how do you make sense of the birth of Jesus Christ, a Jewish Messiah and Savior and King? How does that make sense for us that aren't Jewish? So uh, verse, uh, chapter 1 on verse 26, we're going to start there. I think that Luke, so for, for some part, wants to take us back to this verse. Uh, chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on that earth. Most of you may know this verse, that God created us in his image and his likeness. And it's a beautiful picture because it tells us our identity or our first original God's intent of the design of humanity. That we were to be made in his image and in his likeness. Well, what does that mean? In his image, uh, God, Elohim, right? The creator God, that was the biggest thing that people know God. He created the whole world. He created things. He had dominion. He had rulership of things, and he had it in order. He created good things. And so to be made in the image of God, what that refers to is dominion, rulership, royalty, that we've been made into the image of God. You, you can see that it says that they will rule the fish of the sea. God has given us dominion over the earth, and that is one way that we get to reflect God. But it says in his likeness, his likeness, who God is, his attributes, reflecting his attributes of love, of, of goodness, truth, and peace all in the earth. So what is this saying? That humanity will extend God's kingdom of love, of truth, of goodness, and peace. That that was what we were designed to be, to be made in God's image and his likeness. But what do we see in the story? How many, how many of us know the story of the fall of man? We know that the disobedience of Adam and Eve, they eat the fruit. And it's, it's, a, it's a story of, of just sadness. That now they've been eternally separated from God. And God comes into the, the Garden of Eden asking, where are you? Where do we find in the story that Adam and Eve are ashamed and they're guilty? And that was the first birth of brokenness, that they had sinned against God. And that I think that Luke is trying to take us back to the beginning to understand our situation. Paul explains this in, in Romans chapter 5, starting on verse 12, that it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all have sinned. Because Adam sinned, Adam and Eve sinned, now the whole world has sinned. We've been tainted and guilty by this sin, this brokenness. 
Still in that chapter, Paul writes, For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes to the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made, right, uh, the many were made sinners, so also through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So because Adam and Eve sinned, because mankind sinned against God, that affected all future generations. That affects us today, 2,000 years later. Well, not really. But Adam and Eve sinned, and therefore it affects all people. In the same way, Christ, Christ died, and he was made righteous. And because he is Christ, he extended that grace and truth and righteousness to all people. If you can show that next slide there. Because Christ did that. So what Paul is trying to say here and what Luke is trying to take back to is that the fall of humanity had affected every single person for future generations to come. But Jesus comes into the picture and he says, because Jesus' obedience, everybody has been made righteous. The effects of sin is very serious. The fact that we had sinned against God in the beginning, it, it disrupted everything. Our image, what we were meant to do. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that sin, he describes sin as, a, as sort of like corruption. A, a, a good thing turned into bad. A beautiful thing turned ugly. Of, of this distortion image of, of twisting the truth. You have a little bit of truth and you twist it and it just, it disrupts God's image of things. And so we were made to be in relationship with God, but because of sin... Now we're separated from God. We were made to be image bearers and rule the earth, and now the world rules us. We've been a slave to it. We were made to be in God's likeness, and now we do the opposite. Now we're broken. Instead of loving, we hate. Instead of doing good, we do evil. Instead of telling the truth, we lie. We do quite the opposite. So Luke is trying to paint a picture here of our first downfall as humanity, our need for a Savior, that this Savior is going to be for all. Luke is leading people back to Genesis to see the urgency of humanity's condition. He wants us to piece together and answer why the birth of Jesus Christ matters to Gentiles. But we know that the story didn't stop there. There's a promise. Flip over a few pages to Luke chapter 3, starting on verse 13. We see that God is addressing sin, and he's, he's uh, referring to the, the serpent here. The serpent is a symbolism for evil or for sin. And, and it says this, starting on 3.13. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And, and the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on uh, your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head 
and you will strike his heel. It's an interesting play on words here. But the story doesn't end with the fall of man. God promises something. There's consequences for sin. He's addressing those things. And he's saying to the serpent. But then it says in the very bottom, for her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Again, it's a very poetic thing, but what we see here is that there's going to be a seed of the offspring of the woman, a Messiah. This is the first signs of a Messiah that is going to come, the anointed one who's going to come and address sin and defeat sin once and for all people. So Luke is trying to take us back to remind us that this Savior, and it's so interesting, man, I, I hope you see this, that this whole part, today in the city of David, back to Luke, right? Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. Oh my goodness, there's so much implications in this. The Messiah who is the Lord. The Messiah is being seen here. This is the first sign of God promising a Savior since the beginning of time, since the beginning of Genesis. And we see this. So, again, Luke is writing, this is going to be good news that will cause great joy for all people. And how does this happen? How do we, how does joy come to us? God has sent Jesus to be the perfect person who would display the image of God, his rulership as king, the rightful king, and in his likeness to uh, reflect all the attributes of God in love, peace, patience, and kindness. Those perfect things he sent Jesus from the beginning of time. And how does this bring us great joy? Well, we know from the story that Luke is trying to tell us from Genesis that God created us to be in relationship Yet sin separated us, and now we have been restored. That relationship has been restored. It has been bring, brought back together. God created us to be in his image and rule the earth, but because of sin, what happened, it, it became a slave. We became a slave to the world, to all the things of the world, all the bad things. And now, because of that, we have been set free. Jesus came to set us free from sin. God created us to be in his likeness, yet because of sin, it has broken us and it has fractured our image of the likeness of who we're supposed to be. And now because of Jesus, that has been mended. Are you seeing this? That Jesus is the Savior of the world, and the reason he brings us great joy is because he's restored us back to God's original intent of who we're supposed to be. If this makes sense to you, if, if, if this clicks for you, the story of the gospel that plays out in the birth of Jesus Christ, that is the only thing that can produce joy, true joy. You may go around your life realizing, trying to fill that emptiness inside of you. You're going to go around in life and five years later, 10 years later, 70 years later, or it could be a week later, and you realize this is, this is not enough. There's something else. This is truly good news. And because of it, because you've received it, you look at the world differently than mo what most people do. 
And, and you go around and, and you look at all the evil in the world and you say, it should not be this way. It should not be this way. The pain and the grief, it should not be this way. The brokenness and sin and famine and death and politics and all this corruption and, and money, it should not be this way. I don't know about you, but if you've ever experienced pain, you've probably asked that same question. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't be this way. The story of Christmas, the whole story, is not just another story. It's not just another Christmas movie or, you know, what Pastor was saying, like the movie Elf or, or any other movie that tries to make you feel good. It's trying to tell you that you need a Savior, that you're lost and you're broken and, and, and you need to go back to God's original design for you to be restored, free from sin, and mended and being made whole. I, I had a, uh, a college, uh, uh, when I was in college, one of my classmates, we always talked about Jesus, and, and she, she was not a believer. Um, and uh, she asked me one day, she said, David, can I celebrate Christmas without celebrating the birth of Jesus? And I think I turned to her and I said, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> but the reality was that I, I felt so sad and, and, and heartbroken for her. Because if, if you don't have Jesus in the whole Christmas story, you have no hope. You're missing out on something beautiful, something that is lasting, something that breaks down all the walls of our insecurities and our fears and the sin in our life. And in our history, we have tried to, to c combat this evil. We have, and it's amazing to me, we have sophisticated technology. Now I have an iPhone that has touchscreen. I mean, imagine sending that iPhone back into the 1935. They'll be looking at this phone like, what is this? It's amazing technology, yet we cannot answer the deepest questions of life. In fact, I, I would even say that because we're on our phone the whole time, the world is even worse, right? And we can't answer the deepest questions of life, but, but Jesus can. He solves the solution to the problem of sin and brokenness in our life. Even Elon Musk, he cannot make something on Twitter that will solve the world's problem. We still have war. We still have famine. We have, still have death and disease. And, and sometimes we, we don't like to think about those things. And I, I understand that. We don't want to dwell on those things. But sometimes, though, you know those days, they hit hard. And they, they come heavy on your soul. And on those days, you realize, oh gosh, I can't just keep ignoring the pain and the brokenness inside. I need someone. I need a savior. In Luke's time, um, it's a really interesting thing. They also try to combat this evil. When I, uh, that verse, uh, verse 10, bring good news, cause great joy for all people. Uh, that word good news, uh, it's, it's an interesting word because we know it as a very Christianized word, the good news, the gospel. But in that time, it was a very, it was political in nature. The word was used to refer history-making, world-shaping reports of political, military, and societal victories in the Roman world. The inscription, uh, good news, or euangelion, that's the Greek, was, is found on a government building dating back from 6 B.C. 
and uh, they call this the Age of Peace, Pax Romana. And Caesar Augustus in that time had his own euangelion, good news, gospel. And they found this, and I'll, I'll love to read it to you. It's an interesting thing. And, and it says this, The most des- divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the beginning of the new year, where area is the providence which has been regulated of our whole existence, has brought our, our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has put all things set in order. And where areas have becoming God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. I mean, just imagine you're, you're Luke and you're writing this gospel for the Gentiles. I'm going to go ahead and throw in that word euangelion, good news, just to rub it into the Roman government. You can obviously, there's, there's, there's two different gospels. The gospel of Caesar Augustus or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we know because of history, Caesar Augustus was not a great person, right? And he didn't solve the world's problems, obviously. I mean, in fact, he was a ruler that was evil and corrupted with power. He was an adulterer, a taker, a gambler. That was the Roman emperor. But Jesus? He comes into the story, the light of the world, born into a manger. In a lowly place, has set to be city of David, ruler, savior born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Oh man, he's trying to paint a picture. This is the guy who has come. This is Jesus, the rightful king. I would like to read to you, and I'll, I'll end here and, and pray out, but I, wa- I want to read to you Philippians chapter 2, starting on verse 5. And it, and it says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is who Jesus is. And I'll just reiterate this, but if this makes sense to you, and this clicks for you, I hope that you put Jesus in his rightful place in your life as not just your Savior, but as your Lord of your life. Someone who dictates, and not dictates, but someone who calls the shots in your life. That you're willing to bet your life on it that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. 
And I hope that that makes it real for you. And, and if you know this intellectually, if this makes sense to you, and you walk away from it, it does not become an intellectual problem. It becomes a heart problem. A problem that, that, that you just got to give in. And God will tug on your heart. He'll be ready for you. So I encourage you to respond in such a way that Luke tells us that we have this good news that causes great joy for all people. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for revealing uh, your characteristics, uh, your son, Jesus, that he has come into the world and he has set us free from the bondage of sin and brokenness. And through him, Lord, that we may be made new. And in this time of Christmas, Lord, I pray that we may understand the implications of those things. That Jesus, you are the hope. That we, we don't have to go around looking for it, Lord. You, you are it. You're, you're the hope. You're, you're the light of the world. And Lord, we are lost and we are desperately needing a Savior to find us. So Lord, I pray that that may be real uh, for, for people in this room, for myself. We may trust you as Savior, Messiah, and Lord. Christ's name that we pray. Amen.